to animate this word to us, to give us understanding, to challenge the way we live, the way we think, and the way we serve you. Especially today, God, I realize that the word that we are here really does challenge us. It causes us to think differently. And so I ask that uh, we allow your word to have its effect and we look to see carefully whether the things that we hear this morning really are your word and if they are that we would embrace them and allow them to change us father we invite you to be glorified in your church we invite you to glorify your son through the proclamation of the word and we ask this through the power of the presence of the holy spirit in the name of jesus amen an investment table is a spreadsheet it's used to calculate the return on an investment and it considers certain things like the starting amount the length of the investment the rate of return and the end amount for instance if you had uh, ten thousand dollars and you saved it for 20 years in your mattress um, with the rate of inflation being two percent at the end of that time your ten thousand dollars would be worth six thousand seven hundred and thirty dollars however if you invested that money at 7%, it would be worth $38,697. Well, there's a second table also in investments. Rather than an investment table, this is actually a cost or debt or amortization table, and it shows you how much it costs you to borrow money. And that applies to businesses, and applies to individuals, and it applies to nations. Several years ago, I found this really interesting, several years ago, when the national debt was only $4 trillion, it's now $32.6 trillion. But when it was $4 trillion, James Boyce said, the United States began to go into serious debt only after World War II. Before that, we were living within our means. Income paid for the debt on bonds. Inflation was negligible. The country had a positive balance of trade. Today, our national debt has passed $4 trillion. None of us really knows how much one million is, let alone one billion or one trillion. Breaking it down may help. Four trillion dollars is $16,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. If we wanted to pay this debt off, we would first have to stop going into debt, which our leaders are unwilling or unable to do. They're actually increasing the debt at an accelerating rate rather than decreasing it then we would have to repay what we borrowed at what rate and for how long well at six percent interest um, the interest alone is 657 million dollars per day if we started a repayment plan of say one billion dollars one billion dollars per day it would take us more than eleven thousand years to pay off four trillion dollars People think it doesn't really matter that our government owes money since, as they say, we owe it to ourselves, but that's unsound reasoning. Money borrowed by the government always has to be repaid by someone. It can be repaid literally by future taxes or deceitfully by future inflation in which the dollars are simply made to be worthless, or it can be repudiated during a period of political unheaval. In other words, it can be stolen from the lenders who are the people there are no other possibilities. Debt simply does not go away. Now, those statistics were when it was $4 trillion. Today, it's $32.6 trillion. That's $97,000 for every man, woman, and child in America today. The interest alone on our national debt is 
billion dollars a year. Now, we can't really do anything about the government's debt, uh, except I suppose we could try to elect representatives who are concerned about our, our debt and have the courage to fight it, but we can do something about our own debt for which many people have a very serious problem. And the difficulty has, has arisen because we live in a very consumer-oriented society, a culture that's deceived a lot of people into living beyond their means. And they do so on the assumption that they'll be able to pay off the debt with future income. They assume that they'll have more money uh, later. But that's a dangerous assumption. First of all, you don't know that you're going to have more money to pay off your debt. You can't count on that. And living in financial deficit is foolish. The, the problem is not just simply that you have to repay the, the principal and repay the interest. You also have to repay the interest on a compounding amount. For instance, let's just say you borrowed $100,000 to buy a house on a 30-year loan, and you understand at 10% interest, you think you're going to pay back $100,000 plus 10%. Not so. On a 30-year investment at 10%, you would pay back $315,000. That's how compounding interest works. Now, that's all very interesting, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, but those are not the two tables that I want to talk about this morning, the investment table and the debt table. The, the two tables that I want to look at today come from the, the Ten Commandments, and the, there's the one table of the commandments, and which refers to our relationship to uh, how our behavior towards God, like having no other gods before him, and um, not making any graven images. Uh, what's the third one? Uh, uh, make, keep, keep God's name um, holy and, and remember to keep the Sabbath. So those are, we talk about the vertical relationship, the first table of the law. The second table of the law has to do with our horizontal relationship, the relationship that we have to one another, like um, respect marriage, the sanctity of life, uh, recognize other people's possessions, tell the truth, stuff like that. So the first table of the law refers to the vertical table, our relationship to God. The second table of the law refers to our horizontal relationship, our relationship with other people. Now, coincidentally, when Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the people, there were two tablets. And so a lot of people assume that on these two tablets you have the first table, our relationship to God, and the second tablet is the second table, our relationship to one another. I don't think that's true. I think in the context of Moses giving the, the commandments, it was given as a covenant. So the, the sovereign would have a copy of the entire covenant, and the vassal would have a copy of the entire covenant. So I think probably the two tablets are duplicates. They're, they're one belonging to each party in the covenant. However, we're not talking about two tablets. We're talking about the two tables of, of the law. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off two weeks ago. Um, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Now, in Romans chapter 12, Paul um, has summed up his doctrinal dissertation, his foundation for for how we are to um, observe and worship God. And now in Romans chapter 12, he begins to challenge the saints to action based on what he was teaching in the first 11 chapters. So we get to chapter 12, 
um, verses 1 and 2, it, set, it sets forth the uh, primary theme of everything from chapter 12 to chapter 15 in the first verse of chapter 12, because out of gratitude for the grace that God has shown us in salvation, we should therefore present our bodies as living sacrifices in a worshipful service. And we do that by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by the continual renewing of our mind. So our obligation to God is expressed in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and it is, uh, it is basically a reiteration of the entire Old Testament. In fact, Jesus sums it up in the same thing when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So that comes from um, Deuteronomy 6, and then Jesus reiterates it in Matthew 22, 37. He is summarizing the first table of the law. The first table is our relationship to God, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Then what follows from Romans chapter 1 and 2 is the application and the, um, the practice of the second table, uh, the second greatest command. Remember, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? And he answered, the greatest command is the vertical, the first table, love the Lord your God. That's the first, that's the greatest command that sums up our relationship to God. And he says the second greatest command is like that, and now he gives us the summation of the second table, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here you have the summation of the two tables of the Ten Commandments of the entire Old Testament on these two tables. Now beginning in our current passage, what we're looking at today, beginning in Romans 13, verse 8, he now shows us the flip side of what that looks like, not just that we should have love for one another, but what exactly does that look like? What does love do? Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not wrong Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the, the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling, quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So our text begins with let no debt remain outstanding. Or if you have the ESV or the King James Bible, it says owe no one anything. Now Hudson Taylor and along with many other Christians in the past have stopped there and concluded that it is therefore wrong to Christ, for Christians to borrow or have debt because the text says, owe no one anything. Uh, now, if you look at what Paul has been talking about in its context, and remember, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's in verse 7 of chapter 13. 
And Paul says, give to everyone whatever it is that you owe him, whether it's honor or taxes or whatever. Give to whatever you owe him. And now we get to owe no man anything. Well, does that mean that Christians shouldn't borrow? Does it mean that God is against capitalism? Um, is it wrong for Christians to be in debt? Well, not only does the Bible assume capitalism, it actually promotes it. It's not about borrowing or investing that Romans 13:8 is speaking about. It's about returning what is due. It's about paying what is owed. For instance, there's nothing wrong with uh, renting your house or renting an apartment. It's not your house. It's not your capital. It belongs to someone else. You don't own the house, but neither do you owe on the house. So every month when the rent is due and you pay your rent, you owe nothing. You, have paid, you are paid up. Um, it's not your capital. It's somebody else's capital. But as long as your rent is current, you don't owe the owner. It's not an outstanding debt. Um, similarly, you may be paying a mortgage on your house. You're, you're buying your house, and you're buying it with somebody else's capital, the bank's capital. And you have to pay your monthly payment. If you pay your payment, you don't owe anything more. You're, you're current on that debt. Um, by the way, they don't actually want their money back. They, they want it to continue to accumulate interest. They, they want it to, their investment to grow. Now, where most people get into trouble when it comes to debt is that they, they make these promises to repay stuff, and then they can't make the payment on the promises that they've made, and their reaction is to grumble at God because God has not provided them all that they need. After all, didn't God promise to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory? Philippians 4.19. Or more recently in, in uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 32, he that, not, that spared not his son but delivered him up for us, um, shall he not also with him freely give us all things. And so we wonder when we get to the end of the, the money and there's still bills to pay, we wonder why is God not fulfilling his promise to supply all of my needs? And the answer is he has, but you have chosen to go into deficit spending. You've chosen to borrow money for the things that you want and therefore you don't have the things that you need. It's a little disingenuous to go running to God saying, I need money for formula and baby diapers and, and milk because I don't have it and you promised to supply all of my needs and yet we have um, exorbitant expenses that we put on our, our visa card. We, we, we don't have the things that we need because we have bought things that we didn't need, discretionary things, and then now we, we don't have and then we blame God. It's, this is God's fault. So although credit isn't immoral, um, you got to realize that the people who loan you money aren't being nice to you. They're not trying to make your life easy. They're trying to take your money. They're, um, so you need to consider that, you know, what the actual cost is when you borrow money because obviously you're going to repay the principal and you're going to repay the interest. But the other costs involved with borrowing money is that you're going to have difficulty repaying that and you're going to have the loss of disposable income because you are retiring a debt. Andrew Feinberg in his book Downsizing Your Debt said, consider Jack, a 28-year-old single marketing executive in New York City who lives somewhat beyond his means and finances his excess with 19.8% credit cards. 
Jack is really paying almost 20% premium per year for what he considers the good life. But he doesn't see it that way. Jack is fixated on the monthly payments, the minimum monthly payments. If he can meet those, things will be okay for another month at least. Jack doesn't realize that if he puts $2,000 worth of clothes on his Visa card and makes only the minimum payments, he'll actually be paying $4,254.01 for the duds, and he'll be paying them off for more than 12 years. Jack understands what 20% means most of the time. He just doesn't understand the problem with 20% debt. Someone who pays 20% a year too much, year after year, for basic consumer goods is ultimately going to have less of what he or she wants, not more. So Paul here is not engaging in a money management course. He's, he doesn't have that in mind when he tells us to render to all what is due them. And rather, he's, he's, uh, he's concerned that we give what is due ongoing. And so if you look in verse 7, he reminds us that we need to make timely payments on what we owe, whether that's taxes, custom, fear, or honor. So it's not just finances that Paul has in mind here. It's whatever we owe to other people. But the point is that you have to keep accounts up to date. In other words, you can't honor the king one day and think, I've done my job, I've made my payment, I've honored the king, therefore it's fulfilled. Because it doesn't end there. You, you honor the king one day, you still owe him honor. Um, you, you have this continual obligation. The same thing is true of taxes. You get to, to the end of the year, you pay your taxes, and so you're up to date, but that doesn't mean now you can stop paying your taxes. It's a continual, ongoing obligation. But now he adds an interesting twist when we get to verse 8, because he adds this unexpected comment that you are never paid up in your obligation to love other people. It is a debt which is never paid. And so you have to keep at it. You have to continually do it. So apart from the financial considerations, all believers have this constant obligation to love each other. It's a debt that we are never paid up on. Uh, Origen says the debt of love remains with us permanently and never leaves us. This is a debt with which we pay every day and forever we owe. And by the Lord's gracious provision, it is a debt we will always have the resources to pay and which the more we pay it, the more willing and more joyful our payments will be. John Stott said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. But now, now that we've set that background, I have to ask an interesting question that I'm going to refer to for the rest of this message, and that is this. If we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace, why should we be concerned with fulfilling the law as Paul is exhorting us to do here? And he says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So what we want to know here is what is the relationship between loving other people and fulfilling the, the law of, of love? And we need to begin with, I think, where Paul begins, not with the legal application of the law, but God's love. That's the, the, the motivation, that's the reason for our adherence to this and any other command. Uh, back to our text, Romans 
13.8, don't know anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. <laughs> now, it's an interesting orientation of this text because uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10 are, are, are written as a chiasm. It's, it's kind of like a sandwich. So Romans 8 and, and 10 um, have to do with love fulfills the law. And then in the middle you have verse 9, which gives us five laws. Four of these laws come from the Ten Commandments, and one law comes from Leviticus. And the point is that the law, therefore, explains how believers are to love one another. Understand that. The law explains how we are to love one another. Now, contrary to what a lot of people think, living by love and living by law are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are in, in, inseparable, inseparably related. Um, God's law can't be obeyed apart from love, and because of love, as Paul has all, already explained, when we love, we fulfill the law. After he declares that love is the fulfillment of the law, he then illustrates with five Old Testament laws. Again, four of them are from the Ten Commandments. They're not in order. But uh, he lists these four commandments from Exodus chapter 20. <coughs> it is repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. <clears throat> the fifth law, or the fifth commandment, comes from Leviticus 19.8. The point is that if we truly love others, we will want to do what is good for them. We will be fulfilling the law. Now, now the law that Paul is quoting from uh, Leviticus 19.8, and that Jesus is declared, um, he, Jesus is declaring this to be the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is the first commandment. But the apostle doesn't mention this because that's not his topic. He's not omitting it because it's not important. He's omitting it because his concentration here is on the second table not the first one. So he, he's telling us the second greatest command, the summation of the second table is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now in our culture, we have, a, we have a misunderstanding of that because we have been taught that in order for you to love anyone or anything, you have to first have this healthy psychological self-image. You have to love yourself supremely. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that we need to love ourselves supremely. It rather assumes that because we are sinners, we already do. The assumption is you, you do love yourself more than anything else. But we are several times admonished, you should love others not only equal to yourself, but more than yourself. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Now we have here then what follows some very specific examples of you, you obey the law and you are fulfilling the requirements of love. It begins with adultery. Let me just say right up front, God is not opposed to sensual pleasure. He is the inventor of it. He delights when we delight in what he has made. But he intends for this sensual pleasure to be channeled. Uh, adultery 
is really not about love at all. It's about unbridled, unrestrained sensuality. It looks at the other person not as someone to love and give oneself to. It looks at the other person as an object to possess. When Jesus said that uh, the man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery in his heart, he is saying that that man has devalued the person. He, he's impersonalized her. He sees her not as an individual. He sees her as an object to possess. He says, don't murder uh, the one who acts in love, does not let his disappointment grow into hate, and does not allow his hate to become murderous. Murder is the ultimate expression of hate. Um, he says, don't covet. And this is that, the last of the Ten Commandments. And, of course, this is the one I think we have the most problem with because we excuse it and we actually endorse it in our culture. We don't excuse or endorse adultery or murder. Um, but to, to, uh, to covet, we think that's a good thing. Um, to covet uh, gets us into trouble because it makes us insensitive to other people's needs. Instead of thinking how we can help somebody, we're looking at what they have and we're jealous of what they possess and we want it for ourselves. Now, all, all of these laws, adultery is the end result of unchecked fantasy, murder is the logical result of nurturing a grudge. In fact, all of these sins are the logical extension of a mind and a heart that does not love other people. It's, it, it sees other people as impersonalized objects to possess, um, to toy with, to control, to consume, to abuse. That's not love. That is the antithesis of love. Now, Paul um, tells us to observe the law, to obey the commands, and we already get our hackles up because we think we're under grace, we're not under law. And that sounds like legalism. It sounds like I'm promoting legalism to you. But legalism and obedience are not the same thing. Uh, obedience is what doing what God asks, what God commands, what God requires. Legalism has at least three different improper uses or definitions. The first is that we consider legalism um, to be the, the effort to gain God's favor or to achieve or win our own salvation. So by doing things, we gain the favor of God. That's not the kind of legalism what we're talking about. Or it can mean that uh, we have this fixation on adding man-made regulations and laws to what God has done, to what Christ has done, because we are saying, Christ did a really good job, and he almost has provided salvation for us, but I need to do something to finish it or to make it uh, perfect. And there's a third definition of, of, of legalism, and, and that has to do with uh, that we are so fixated with doing certain things, certain rules, that we overlook uh, the, the more obvious, the more important, the weightier matters like justice, mercy, and, and faithfulness. But again, we're not talking about legalism here, we're talking about obedience, obedience to, obedience to, to, to love and to heed God's perfect law. Now, the law helps us in practice because it gives us uh, more specific direction on what we're supposed to do. It, it, it helps us in our relationship with our friends because we are tempted to make our friendship 
mutual admiration societies instead of mutual edification societies. It teaches us how to show grace to each other and to encourage one another and challenge one another and rebuke one another. And the law also teaches us how to, to show love to, to our coworkers, to see them as people, not just skill sets that we can, can use. The law teaches us how to love the poor, how to love the widow, the, the orphan, the spouse, the parent, the child. The law uh, that God gives us tells us, it gives us instruction on how we are to express love. It doesn't just leave us to figure it out for ourselves or, or make our own best guess at it. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I've been surprised when I looked at the commentators how many of them saw this as a, a jumping off point to talk about eschatology, the study of the last, the last days, the, the coming of Christ. They, they begin to speculate about the deliverance that we'll receive when Christ comes. This is not what this verse is about. The, the Greek words here merely say, and this, knowing the time. If you have the New International Version, they do another a pretty good job when they add the word present, knowing this present time, because that's what Paul's talking about. He's not concerned with future time. He's not concerned about the Lord's return in this context. He is rather concerned about what's happening right now, this present time. And he says, verse 11, you know the time salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. So Paul is looking at time here from two different perspectives. And the first perspective he's looking at is the elapsed time between our initial salvation and the present. And he's saying that the, the time that you have had so far since you've become a Christian ought to have produced a level of maturity, a greater sensitivity to other people, a greater love for one another. That's what should have been transpiring in the time between when you became a Christian and right now. And the second way that Paul's talking about it, he's saying because so much time has elapsed in such an unprofitable way that, uh, that there's very little time left for you to be doing the will of God. So Paul is writing to these Roman saints and he's challenging them with the same kind of things that we face. It's not a coincidence that he mentions adultery and stealing and covetousness and murder because that's the same things that are on our hearts today. And he's not saying here that uh, we need to get things in order because the day of salvation when Christ returns is coming. He's saying that you've already used up a lot of time and whether Christ comes or whether you die and go to him, you don't have a lot of time left to, to obey God, to do what he's asking us to do, to, to show love for one another. There's no time to waste. Now I think, at least in my mind, all of these things can be boiled down to two essential questions that, that, that we have. Two essential pertinent questions that we need to investigate. Number one, does this mean that I no longer need the law since I have love? Can't I just let love be my guide? And conversely, question two, can't I fulfill the requirements of love just by observing the law? 
Will, the, will law fulfill my requirement to love? So let's probe these two questions. Um, some people will advocate, all we need is love. Yeah, da, 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 da. But is that true? Is, is love all that we need? I mean, the reasoning is that uh, we needed the law only so far as to get us saved. But now that we are saved, we can dispense with the law. Um, Galatians 3.23, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now the faith has come, we are no longer under that tutor. Does that mean, therefore, that there's no purpose for the Old Testament law, that we can simply reject it? It was helpful, it, it, it led us to Christ, it exposed our sin, it exposed our weakness, but now that we have this, the, now that we have this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can now jettison the law. I have a good friend who teaches just that. Everything in the Bible about law is bad, and we need to do everything we can now that we are those under grace to jettison the teachings about law, to get rid of its tentacles upon us. And we need to, we, we're, grace is good, law is bad. We have to do everything we can to do now liberate ourselves from the law since we are now under grace. Now, what does that teaching fail to see? Well, first, it fails to see that the New Testament is full of commands. It's full of orders, not suggestions. You, know, you read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, it's full of commands, uh, demands for obedience. Or you look back at uh, where we were in Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 9 through 21, there's a whole list of commands for us to observe. Or you go back to Paul's lists in Ephesians 4 through 6. They're commands that we are to observe. Or you look forward to Revelations chapter, or did it, didn't I, Dave? Revelation <laughs> chapter 2 through 3, the letters to the, the seven churches, they're full of commands. You just can't throw out the law as if it's no longer significant because the New Testament is full of commands. You'd have to throw out a lot of the New Testament in order to say we are no longer influenced, bound by, or required to do things. Secondly, the law does not contradict love, but rather it clarifies it. How do we know the way that we're to love other people unless God tells us this is how you should do it? How do we know how to love apart from the law, which gives us clarity? For instance, some people will say that uh, we, all we have to do is just love each other. And, and if you love one another, you're, you're not going to do anything that, that hurts somebody else. You're not going to be offensive to them, and you're not going to say anything that's corrective. Is that really loving? It is not. In fact, I think the biggest objection for churches today to do uh, church discipline is this attitude is, well, we, we want to express love for other people. We, we don't want to put somebody on the spot or make them uncomfortable by pointing out their, their sin. Is that, in fact, the most loving thing to do? It is not. So Paul's use of the command is not evidence of him disposing of the law, but rather embracing the law. So what then does the command, you should love your neighbor as yourself, what does that have to do with the gospel? It has to do with the gospel because love is the fulfillment of the law. 
Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's what he says, chapter uh, 13, verse 8b. Love is the fulfillment of the law. How can it be the fulfillment of the law when Christ has already fulfilled the law for us? Because Paul's not talking about fulfilling the law as a means of gaining acceptance before God. He's not talking about observing the law as a means of winning our salvation. He's not dangling out some new deficiency in the work of Christ that we have to labor to complete because he's already made that plain for us in the last 11 chapters. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, those who have received satisfaction with God through Christ's work are now able to observe the law. We now have this ability and we have this rationale for doing what he tells us to do. It's not to, to merit salvation, it's to please God. We are never more like Christ than we love those who do not love us. Obedience is the heart of faithful Christianity. It's obedience that leads us to joy and blessing and spiritual power. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He also said on another occasion, whoever it is that does the will of my God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Obedience demands the exercise of the will. Just as obedience, uh, as, as we're just, let me get this straight, obedience, uh, I just had it. <laughs> we are commanded to exercise obedience in faith to salvation. And we are commanded to exercise obedience in love to fulfill, the God, to fulfill the commands of God. So God demands faith and he demands obedience. The one is tied intricately to the other. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. So also, you are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. This is not a good suggestion. This is a command. This is a command from our Lord. It is a command to radical behavior which is different from our inclination. With what results? The New Testament church stunned the world because they obeyed this command. The world could not help but see there's something different about these people. They love each other. And with what promise does Jesus add this command? that all people will know that you are my disciples. And of course, the implication here is that people will turn to Christ when they see love displayed. Again, it's a command. It's an order. Imagine what Port Townsend would, would be like if one church started to practice this. So Christ gives this command and now Paul in the text before us today in Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, 13, 8 through 14, he, he gives this similarly profound call, command, that we are to love on the horizontal, love on the level. Again, can you imagine what a witness 
our church would have if we began obeying that command. We have an astronomical national debt. We also have an astronomical consumer debt. The consumer debt averages $102,000 per person in the United States. Per person, not per household. Debt payments on consumer goods average 9.7% of the average person's income. That is four times the amount that we statistically give to God. So I think it's a good idea for Christians to liberate themselves from financial debt. But one debt that is good and that we can never finish paying off, that we continue to owe, is to love one another. And by this, will all men know that we are his disciples, that we love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we want to serve you with our whole heart, and we want to observe your word, and we want to weigh it where it is truth. We invite you to have its effect in changing our lives. If any of this is uh, nonsense or the fabrication of my mind, I pray that you would dismiss it. But I pray, God, that you would cause the truth to be embraced in our hearts, that Christ Jesus would be glorified in his church and in this world. And to that end, we ask it in his name. Amen. Let's stand and worship God together. Fear not, I am with thee, O oh, be.